Hello and welcome to another edition of Opposition Cast. Coming back to you uh, after a, a bit of a break, uh, we normally try and upload every two to three weeks um, and we've had uh, a four-week break, um, so uh, apologies for that. Um, all I can say is that we've been working very hard on getting some uh, excellent guests who will be coming in uh, the next few weeks um, who I think will be worth waiting for. Um, but just so that we don't prolong the, uh, the interval between uh, episodes any further, I just wanted to record a fairly short um, podcast. I say that, but of course uh, these things can overrun. Um, And for the first time, I'm going to be doing it um, on my own uh, without a guest. Um, So uh, if you want to switch off, then do so now. Um, But um, I will just uh, try to keep it as uh, interesting as I can. Um, One of the things I thought that uh, we haven't done uh, very much on the podcast, uh, largely because I wanted to keep it... um, uh, fairly timeless so that you could listen to it whenever you wanted to uh, certainly the way I listen to podcasts um, some of the ones that I've uh, gone back to uh, over recent uh, weeks and months during lockdown uh, have been ones that have been recorded uh, several years ago uh, and so they they aren't uh, dated uh, particularly they're things that um, are on topics that are uh, relevant today um, even though they were recorded some time ago um, and I think that's uh, really how we want Opposition Cast to, to work, that uh, the interviews that we do uh, and the um, subjects that we talk about will be of interest um, in the years ahead, regardless of what's happening uh, in the news. But I think one thing that I, I, I do want to, uh, just occasionally, is uh, current affairs and what's happening in the world of opposition uh, here and now. So that's what I was going to do today. Um, and we're recording this on... Uh, December the 11th, uh, 2020, at a period in history when um, Brexit and Covid still dominate everything. Um, And I think it's worth pausing to reflect, and this is something which I always tell my students, um, and as we've been doing um, lectures in the last couple of weeks, uh, rounding off the, the modules for this term, is something that I've highlighted, which is that when you are looking at uh, periods in history, from a distance, it's often difficult to capture one element of it, which is the sheer uncertainty of what is uh, happening at the time, and the fact that the people who are taking decisions in government and indeed in opposition um, are completely unaware of how the story ends. They may have a plan, they may have an idea of how they want things to go, but in reality um, they are at the mercy of events. And this is something I'm particularly conscious of Uh, this week, as all of the discussion in uh, the British political scene is over whether or not Boris Johnson as Prime Minister is going to be able to secure a trade deal with the European Union, or whether we will have a no-deal situation and uh, and, uh, leave the transition period following Brexit uh, without a trade deal. And uh, at this point in time, I can't tell you whether that's going to happen or not, uh, and neither can anyone else. Uh, it's one of those um, unknown uh, things which could have a huge effect on politics in the next few years. And as we sit here, we don't know which of those options it's going to be. Um, it could, of course, be some uh, fudge uh, in the middle that we could end up with some fudge deal that um, uh, prolongs the process. Um, but it does seem that we're reaching some form of a decision point. Um, and this is something which I think uh, strikes me as uh, as important because when we look back on this period uh, and what happens at the next general election 
this will play very heavily into that. Um, equally, I think with the way that the uh, COVID-19 situation has developed, we now have a situation where a vaccine is available and is being gradually rolled out. And so the expectation is that from the new year, uh, things will start to get back to normal. Um, and one of the unknowable things here is whether, uh, as the situation uh, hopefully improves uh, and uh, the country does get back to some degree of norm normality, whether politics returns to normal uh, and uh, issues like the aftermath of Brexit uh, become dominant, uh, or whether there will be uh, a fundamental change to the way in which government uh, addresses issues. For example, we've seen a huge rise in uh, government spending during this crisis for understandable reasons. Um, and in any case, we already knew that from the uh, the outcome of the 2019 election, when Boris Johnson won uh, what's known as the red wall seats of uh, former Labour constituencies in predominantly leave voting areas, um, that there was uh, a focus after that on um, what he called levelling up uh, to ensure that those areas that had perhaps been uh, forgotten about or felt that they had been neglected um, would see some benefits uh, of uh, government spending in future. And there does seem to have been a, a shift in the attitude in government before COVID over the issue of um, public spending. Um, the era of austerity and the, the need to reduce the deficit uh, seems at least rhetorically to be over. Um, but of course the aftermath of COVID will require there to be uh, significant efforts made to balance the books um, following this huge uh, public expenditure that's been required. So there are a huge number of challenges, but it, it, it remains to be seen whether the impact of COVID on politics uh, becomes as significant as, as it looks like it might be. So that's the sort of broad canvas, uh, the backdrop to the political debate uh, at the moment. But let's just now focus in a bit on the Labour Party, the official opposition, as they are at the moment, um, and the challenges that they specifically are facing in these times. And I think it's worth starting by going back to the conference speech that uh, Sir Keir Starmer made uh, in September at the sort of virtual conference, a uh, speech that he made um, in what would have been a packed hall, but was in fact an empty room. Uh, and uh, he painted a fairly bleak picture of the party's predicament. Let's be brutally honest with ourselves. When you lose an election in a democracy, you deserve to. You don't look at the electorate and ask them, what were you thinking? You look at yourself and ask, what were we doing? The Labour Party has lost four general elections in a row. We've granted the Tories a decade of power. The Tories have had as many election winners in five years as we've had in 75. When you put it in those terms, it really does seem a massive task uh, for the leader of the opposition. It kind of makes you wonder why on earth anyone would want to do the job, really. Um, but he's clearly got a sense of the scale of what it is that he has to achieve. But it's not going to be easy for him for a number of reasons. There are things that uh, he may try to do, but which he is going to be slightly inhibited in actually doing uh, because of some of the challenges specifically that he faces within uh, the Labour Party. 
So that's what I wanted to talk about today, is just some of the uh, challenges that he may face in the months, uh, years to come in the run-up to the next general election. Um, and the first of those is the extraordinary position with regard to Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the, the f- uh, former leader of the Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer's predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, who was, of course, his political phenomenon, uh, completely unexpected uh, as leader of the Labour Party in 2015. Uh, after that general election defeat, it was widely expected that uh, the job would go to uh, one of the more mainstream candidates who was standing, um, and this sort of revolt by uh, the grassroots of the Labour Party and, and others who had uh, joined the Labour Party um, uh, after periods of uh, uh, of not being members and had, of supporting other uh, left-wing um, organisations and, and parties. Um, this this sort of uprising, this people's revolt within the Labour Party that brought Jeremy Corbyn uh, to office, um, and the quite extraordinary um, election results in 2017, in which, uh, far from uh, being humiliated, um, as was anticipated, uh, and Theresa May expected to have won a huge uh, landslide majority, um, coming actually quite close uh, to the Conservatives in terms of vote share, um, and uh, uh, and doing rather better actually than um, in that those terms than than Ed Miliband had done, uh, completely unexpected and one of these things that um, as I've talked about um, is one of the sort of quirks of history that uh, it was very difficult to predict um, at the time. So um, Jeremy Corbyn um, being this uh, huge figure and uh, having sort of something approaching a cult around him in terms of his supporters. Is remains a, a very important figure for the left uh, and for the Labour Party. So the prospect of him being suspended or expelled from the Labour Party uh, is really quite extraordinary. Um, and this is something which uh, happened in the aftermath of the publication uh, last month, um, or possibly a month before that, in, in fact, um, of the Equality and Human Rights Commission's report into allegations of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party Um, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn's response to that uh, report being published uh, was viewed uh, as not sufficiently uh, taking the lessons of it, uh, seeking to minimise and um, excuse some of his uh, actions as leader Um, and uh, it was uh, something which uh, triggered his suspension from the Labour Party, which was a real moment uh, to to see the the recent uh, leader of the Labour Party and somebody who was such a, a big figure in the party um, being uh, suspended like that uh, was really quite extraordinary. But of course, what happened after that, um, some weeks after that, um, the uh, governing body of the Labour Party, the National Executive uh, Committee, reinstated him uh, to membership uh, following his appeal. Um, And the challenge then became for uh, Sir Keir Starmer what he would do about Jeremy Corbyn. He clearly wasn't happy about the fact that Corbyn had been readmitted to the Labour Party. Uh, He was seeking to draw a line under Corbyn's uh, leadership and also to demonstrate that he was uh, unafraid of um, taking a a hard line on on those who sought to uh, minimise anti-Semitism. And so the position that he uh, was in was to decide... Uh, whether he would, in line with that decision to readmit Jeremy Corbyn, uh, readmit him to the Parliamentary Labour Party. As leader of the Labour Party, 
uh, Starmer doesn't have control over the uh, disciplinary process. This was actually a uh, something that was fundamental to the whole issue over anti-Semitism and uh, the allegations of um, uh, problems with how the leader's office uh, uh, did try and interfere with it. So that's an independent process uh, over which he has no direct control. What he does have control over as leader of the Labour Party is uh, who has the, the Labour whip in the House of Commons, and that became uh, the issue. And, of course, he, he uh, very swiftly decided that he would not restore the whip to Jeremy Corbyn, uh, and that Jeremy Corbyn would have to sit, although a Labour member um, of the party would have to sit as uh, an independent member of Parliament um, and not as a member of the Labour Party. Um, and that's something which has uh, triggered, understandably, um, uh, a huge amount of controversy within the Labour Party. Uh, and it's something for which uh, Starmer is directly responsible, and um, uh, and obviously he is uh, content that this is this is a position that he is prepared to defend. But the longer term impact of that, I think, is going to be this simmering battle uh, and this um, conflict with the left and the Corbyn uh, wing of the Labour Party. Uh, I think it's been quite surprising how the uh, the citadel of Corbynism. Uh, fell so quickly. Uh, during the leadership election uh, that brought Keir Starmer to office, it was widely expected that the party membership uh, had been fundamentally changed and transformed. The, La the Labour membership had grown uh, enormously and had grown, uh, it was believed, uh, in a leftward direction um, with those who were supportive of Jeremy Corbyn uh, joining the party. Um, and so it was kind of expected that uh, the leader who emerged from that election earlier uh, this year was going to be somebody in the mould of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and the uh, candidate who uh, seemed to epitomise that was Rebecca Long-Bailey, uh, who'd been a member of Corbyn's shadow cabinet, uh, as had Starmer, uh, but had been a, uh, a fan of his and, and a true believer. And she was the one who was endorsed by many Corbyn supporters. Um, and of course, she didn't win. Um, and uh, Starmer won actually quite convincingly. Uh, and not only that, uh, he, um, a few months later, dispensed with the services uh, of Rebecca Long-Bailey in the Shadow Cabinet, and she now uh, sits on the backbenches. So the way in which uh, Keir Starmer has, uh, has uh, secured his grip on the Labour Party has been quite surprising. Uh, you might have expected there to be uh, much more of a pushback and much more difficulty uh, for him uh, in dealing with what uh, many believe to have been a transformed party in the mould of Corbyn. That doesn't seem to have happened, but this does have the capacity to rumble on over the next few years. Uh, there are many who believe that Jeremy Corbyn has been uh, very unfairly treated by uh, by Starmer, for example, um, and that Starmer's uh, intention to uh, to change the party and to adopt a more um, centrist position is the wrong path. So there are these very senior figures who in the past would have been seen as very fringe figures. John McDonnell and uh, Jeremy Corbyn were always seen as outsiders and on the left of the party. Uh, these are people who are now the former leader and former shadow chancellor of the party. Uh, and there are many other people who had been brought into the shadow cabinet by Jeremy Corbyn um, and therefore given a platform and who now have uh, more stature than they otherwise would have had. And so the capacity for the Labour Party to uh, have these kind of internal divisions and problems, both within the Parliamentary Labour Party, but perhaps more significantly 
outside of it in the country and in, amongst the wider membership are quite significant. Um, and that's something which is not going to go away. So that's the first issue. Uh, I think that's one which we'll be returning to um, on various occasions uh, in the future. The second of them, uh, and I mentioned COVID earlier in the wider context of how um, the uh, the whole of the experience of, of COVID will have an impact on, on politics more widely. That is a, a very real challenge to uh, Keir Starmer and to the Labour Party as well. We saw very early on in the crisis the way in which, as always happens or normally happens in a, a national crisis, the opposition uh, rode in behind the government and uh, were very supportive of uh, the measures that needed to be taken in the immediate uh, term. Um, and that's something which uh, we often see happening, that oppositions um, want to be seen to act responsibly and also want to act responsibly in, in, in times of crisis. But, but since then, what we've seen is a loosening of that uh, degree of support um, from the Labour Party and from uh, Keir Starmer, um, as the crisis has gone on and as the uh, the weeks have turned into to months, uh, inevitably criticism of the way the government has handled it uh, has grown, um, and not just on the Labour benches as well, but also on the Conservative backbenches as well. Um, and so by the time we reached this vote that took place uh, at the start of December, uh, just before the end of the second lockdown, uh, over the uh, introduction of uh, a new tougher regime of uh, tiers, local tiers that would come into place uh, for restrictions. Uh, we saw a lot of, of discontent on the Conservative backbenches um, and the Labour Party also criticising it uh, on the basis of, uh, as they saw it, a lack of adequate financial support and other things um, and um, uh, not being as supportive as they had been previously of measures that had been taken. Uh, and so we've seen a an increase in the level of opposition both on the Conservative side and on the Labour side um, to lockdown and to, to, to Covid measures. The Labour Party, however, did not vote against the measures uh, in that vote in Parliament. Uh, controversially, they took the decision to abstain in that vote um, and they received quite a bit of flack from that. Um, they were accused of, sort of some degree of cowardice by uh, the Prime Minister um, and the government for taking that stance and not um, uh, deciding one way or the other. Uh, but in some ways it was quite a canny move, I think, by uh, Keir Starmer. Uh, one of the tricks of opposition, or uh, if you want to be more polite about it, one of the legitimate strategies for opposition, is to maximise the government's uh, discomfort whilst minimising any problems on your own side. And it's um, one of the things that uh, is quite difficult to do when you are uh, confronted with a government with a large majority, the only way that government is ever going to lose a vote is if there is a sizable rebellion on their side. Um, and so you need to put yourself, if you're going to uh, create problems for the government, you need to put yourself in a position where you are maximising that problem for them. And when you have a government that is facing a, a rebellion on its back benches, if the opposition are supporting what the government's doing, that rebellion is not a problem. It's a political problem because it demonstrates there is a significant um, number of people who disagree with the government, but it doesn't give, put you at risk of uh, losing the vote. So, for example, during the Iraq war vote, uh, there was never any danger of Blair losing the vote because the Conservatives were supporting it. Uh, however, the, the size of the rebellion on his own backbenches was a political problem for him. And the same is true uh, when you have large votes uh, on issues in which the, uh, the Conservatives um, and the Labour Party are 
in their leadership are united on them. And that's what we saw earlier in the crisis when uh, measures that needed to be voted on had the support of both front benches then you could survive you know, quite a sizable opposition, uh, a sizable rebellion on either side to it. What Keir Starmer was able to do by uh, asking his or whipping his Labour MPs to, uh, to abstain on that vote was to maximise the government's uh, problems because um, there might have been some risk uh, to their majority uh, had uh, not uh, enough of them voted for it. With the opposition sitting it out eff- effectively, not voting at all, um, it meant that the decision had to be taken on the ground on the basis of uh, conservative um, votes, and if they had split significantly, um, there could have been a problem. Um, as it turned out, of course, there wasn't. Uh, the measures went through with a, a sizable majority, but the the uh, rebellion on the conservative side was was quite significant. Um, it, it reminded me a little bit of the um, the way in which uh, the Labour Party under John Smith had maximised John Major's problems over uh, Maastricht, where you had this very unlikely alliance on the one hand between uh, Eurosceptic conservatives on uh, on the right and uh, the Labour Party on the left uh, uniting in a way uh, to vote against uh, parts of the treaty for different reasons uh, but in a coordinated way uh, in order to uh, maximise the, the threat to the government. Um, and I think that's, that's really what we saw there was that um, you had a uh, an excuse uh, that the that the Labour Party was able to, to come up with that they didn't want to back it, um, and therefore they were able to maximise the government's problems. So that's one thing. But the general issue of how they um, approach the COVID issue um, over this this period of time, I think, is going to be something that will be reflected on, and in future weeks and months, how they react to uh, further measures that that need to be taken as we come out of, uh, hopefully, as we come out of uh, of restrictions. Uh, will also have an impact and uh, the public will take a view on whether they feel the government has acted um, overall in a reasonable and um, effective way uh, and therefore whether they think that the opposition are right to have backed them or whether the opposition should have um, taken a more critical view and that's a difficult balancing act for Keir Starmer which he's had to uh, tread the line on throughout this whole period of time Um, and that's one which uh, will continue to rankle. Going back to the European issue again in the past, uh, you might have thought, for example, that the uh, the fallout from Black Wednesday, uh, which uh, pretty much doomed the Conservative government of John Major in 1992 um, and re- removed their uh, their reputation for economic competence, actually on the day of Black Wednesday, Gordon Brown, as Shadow Chancellor, um, was highly alarmed because he had supported uh, entry of the UK into the exchange rate mechanism. Um, and so he felt at that time that uh, he would be equally as culpable as the government uh, for this crisis. Of course, that's not what happened. The public viewed it very much as something which was the, the fault of the Conservatives. Um, and uh, that's something which I think generally tends to happen. Uh, even if the opposition have backed the government's position on something, they generally uh, tend to blame the government who did it rather than those on the opposition benches who, who might have backed them. Um, But that brings me on nicely to the next issue and to talk about uh, the issue of the day, uh, the issue of this week, certainly, uh, and the issue of uh, really, it feels like the last sort of four years or so uh, of Brexit. Um, And I won't dwell on this too much. Uh, As I say, I I think this is going to be a very short um, podcast by our usual standards. But I do think it's worth mentioning that there has been a row within the Labour Party and within the Shadow Cabinet 
about the position of Keir Starmer on uh, a potential Brexit deal, uh, trade deal. Um, whether or not he should uh, back that um, or whether they should uh, do what they did over COVID and abstain or actively vote against it. And this has been something which has been debated uh, within the Labour Party and within the Shadow Cabinet um, in recent weeks, uh, with many people feeling that if they uh, fail to support a trade deal that is uh, negotiated, they will not have learnt the lessons of the last election in which they feel they were punished for not accepting um, Brexit. Um, and uh, against that argument, on the one hand, there is the um, suggestion that uh, by voting to uh, support a trade deal, they would be uh, enabling uh, Brexit, uh, enabling what uh, the government uh, wishes to do. Um, and so this is a, a fault line that sort of runs through the Labour Party, how they, uh, they best um, manage this situation, both by trying to recover those red wall seats that are that tend to be more uh, brexit leaning whilst at the same time uh playing to their base and to their core support who are very much anti uh brexit and uh, and pro uh eu um and so trying to balance that whether you uh back the government's position uh, on the basis that uh, it's better than no deal uh, is one argument a uh, pretty strong argument that um, by backing a deal, you are saying that it's the the least worst option uh, from their point of view, um, or whether you say, you know, any deal is a bad deal, uh, and therefore they're not going to vote on it, and so um, deciding to abstain. It seems at the moment that uh, Keir Starmer is uh, determined that the Labour Party should back a deal if one is brought forward, um, in order to demonstrate that they are responsible and that it is better than no deal. Um, but that's not a, an uncontroversial position. And how that plays out in the future is going to be quite significant. Uh, just as with COVID, the public will take a view um, on who is on which side and if uh, those uh, voters who didn't trust that the Labour Party had learnt the lessons uh, of, of Brexit and had accepted it feel that they are still trying to deny um, Brexit. That will be something that will be quite difficult for them. Um, and it's also quite a very very significant issue within the Labour Party as well. People feel very strongly about it. So that's another issue which I think is going to play out. However, uh, perhaps in some ways the best option for Keir Starmer and for the Labour Party, although uh, arguably not for the country, uh, would be a no-deal outcome to the trade talks. Uh, it makes it far easier for the Labour Party to attack the government for a failure to reach a deal uh, when they said that they could do um, than it would be for the government to bring back a deal and ask the Labour Party to support it. In that situation, uh, all of those wings of the Labour Party would be united in saying this is a terrible outcome um, and would be attacking the government with one voice. And so uh, whilst um, I'm sure the Labour Party uh, would not wish to advocate no deal, it might make things politically uh, much easier for them. And the final thing that I wanted to cover um, in this uh, brief tour of the challenges to uh, Keir Starmer and, and Labour is the, the raw political problem of how to win the next election. Uh, it seems pretty obvious as a, uh, as a topic, but it is one that's been attracting some attention um, in recent weeks. Um, the Labour Party has uh, found itself um, ahead of the Conservatives in many opinion polls recently um, by uh, not huge amounts, but uh, in some areas ahead of the Conservatives. Keir Starmer's personal ratings uh, are not as terrible as Jeremy Corbyn's and um, 
and even as Ed Miliband's had been prior to that. And so you might think there is uh, a degree of optimism about the Labour Party and its prospects for the next general election expected in 2024. However, there is one thing that has to be borne in mind when considering the likely prospects for the next general election, and that is the result of the last general election, the, the election that took place in December 2019, a year ago, in which Labour did really, really badly. Uh, they won 202 seats, which was their lowest number since 1935. So on that measure, it was Labour's worst performance since 1935. Uh, their vote share was at just 32.1%, uh, which was uh, a, a drop, a significant drop uh, on what they got in 2017, uh, although it was uh, slightly higher than they got in, in 2015, and it was higher than uh, when they uh, fell to another landslide defeat in uh, 1983. So on vote share, perhaps not looking quite as bad, uh, but within the context of uh, the way in which an election works, uh, it's about the number of seats you win. Uh, and so at the, uh, at the low point that they're on, uh, with a drop of uh, 60 seats from the 2017 election, uh, it was a significant defeat for Labour. Um, as you said, this statistic of it's their lowest number of seats since 1935 is quite striking, um, and rightly so. Um, and so that just provides um, a mountain of seats that Labour needs to win back if it is going to win uh, the next general election. And this is something which has been considered in a new report uh, by Grace Barnett and uh, Neil Lawson of the Compass uh, Pressure Group, uh, a uh, centre-left group um, who have published a report uh, this month on the challenge for Labour. Uh, it's entitled We Divide they conquer and looking at how Labour could potentially win the next general election. And they set out the scale of the challenge. Uh, and it's worth just uh, looking at some of that, in which they say that Labour needs to, to gain uh, 124 seats to win the next election with a majority of just one. 124 seats. Um, and that would require a uniform swing of uh, more than 10% which is larger than the land, Labour landslides uh, of 1997 or of 1945. Um, and whilst a uniform uh, swing is not something which tends to happen nowadays, that was the average that would need to, to occur. Um, and this scenario would also involve them making a, a, a significant comeback in Scotland, which has traditionally been a Labour um, stronghold, but in recent years has been uh, dominated by the Scottish National Party, who won nearly all of the seats there in 2015 and again now are back in um, control of almost all of the seats in, in Scotland. Um, if you take Scotland out of the equation and assume that Labour doesn't make a huge comeback um, there, then the scale of the swing that would be required across the rest of the United Kingdom uh, would be massive of uh, nearly 14%, 13.8%. So winning all 124 seats, um, on that basis uh, the swing would be nearly would need to require a swing in some seats of up to 15%. Uh, so this is a massive challenge. And I think this is the most significant thing that uh, Keir Starmer is going to have to grapple with in the next few years, that he would have to have a seismic election landslide in order to enter government with a majority of just one. And so it's not unthinkable, as we've um, learnt in recent years, Everything is unprecedented until it happens. It could happen. Uh, we could uh, come to the conclusion that the electorate are more volatile, 
than they used to be um, and that this uh, kind of a, a swing is not unprecedented in, in those terms. Um, but it would be a massive, massive deal. Um, and it's um, quite a challenging thing for him to contemplate being able to do. So the question that is asked by this report is, what can Labour do about that, seeing as it is almost an impossible task, as they put it, for them to win the required number of, of seats on their own to form uh, the next government with a majority? Um, and the suggestion they put forward is that this will require Labour to at least consider whether they should be coordinating or cooperating with other progressive parties, uh, most notably with the Liberal Democrats. And the argument that's made in the report is that the Liberal Democrats are much more competitive uh, and are in second place in uh, many Conservative seats where they have the capacity to uh, deprive the Conservatives of those um, seats and Labour doesn't. Um, and that in many of the, uh, much of the rest of the country, the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats are not uh, really fighting each other. Um, and uh, and therefore, they should come to some kind of an arrangement in order to uh, win more seats between them at the next election. And that is a an interesting suggestion. Um, and it brings to my mind uh, another figure with regard to 1935. We've already mentioned the fact that uh, Labour's result in the election last year was their worst in number of seats since 1935. But 1935 was also the last election in which one party, in this case the Conservative Party, um, won more than 50% of the votes cast. And that's quite a striking fact when you consider that in every election since then, the party that has formed a majority government with a majority of uh, seats in the House of Commons, hasn't won a majority of the votes that have been cast by the general public. Um, despite huge landslides, Tony Blair's landslide in 1997, Conservative landslides of the 1980s, uh, all of those elections, uh, despite the, the number of uh, seats in Parliament and the majority there, um, none of those parties have won uh, the majority of uh, votes. So the opposition, in terms of those who have voted for parties other than the party that won the election, has always won more votes since 1935. Um, the title of this report, therefore, I think is quite striking. We divide, they conquer. Um, and it's a very simple principle um, that um, if a uh, party is, uh, or, or if the opposition is united, um, then it can win. If it's divided then a uh, a government or another um, party can can win um and this is something which has plagued labor throughout its history we saw in uh, 1931 when labor was nearly wiped out um this is the irony of the 1935 thing by the way that um, 1935 was actually a recovery for labor um and so in some senses it was a better result for them than uh, than the result last year uh, where they went backwards um in 1931, Labour nearly collapsed. They won sort of, you know, 50 seats or so um, because they had split. Uh, the great split uh, of uh, Ramsay MacDonald and the national government um, led to Labour nearly being annihilated. Uh, and then in successive uh, decades when Labour has been divided, there have always been problems, most notably in 1983 after the split of the SDP off from the Labour Party um, and you had um, a an increase in support for the SDP Liberal Alliance, uh, where they nearly overtook Labour in the 1983 election in terms of vote share. 
Labour did very badly then. But of course, um, the huge majority that uh, that uh, Margaret Thatcher won in that election was not won on a majority of uh, votes overall. And so this argument that Labour has always suffered from a being divided, uh, it's not just Labour, it's also uh, the other opposition parties as well. And so if you were to say that the uh, the Green Party, the Liberal Democrats, the, SD, uh, the SNP uh, and so on, uh, all represent uh, anti-conservative parties, um, and all of their votes together. And yes, they won more votes than the Conservatives. But under the current electoral system, uh, it's the party that wins the most number of seats. But the argument that's put in this Compass report, I think, is very interesting. Um, we divide, they conquer. Um, the we that they're talking about is um, the, the left, uh, not just the Labour Party. They're talking about uh, building a progressive uh, coalition of opposition against the Conservatives in order to win the next election. And that's something which will, I think, uh, provoke a lot of debate. And also, I'm sure, will feature on this podcast in future as we talk to uh, people about the prospects for Labour at the next election uh, as well. And I should also say, in closing um, on that point about uh, united or divided oppositions, um, that the point was brought home to me this week, uh, watching Richard Osman's House of Games, uh, a quiz show on uh, the BBC, which I highly recommend. Um, but if you're not familiar with the show, uh, basically it's played between four contestants, all of them celebrities. Uh, and in the episodes I was watching, the comedian Angela Barnes was doing very well. She'd won the first two days of the quiz that week. And when the scores were uh, recapped at the beginning of the episode... Uh, one of her opponents, the Olympian Greg Rutherford, made a suggestion. Wow, we just add a... our scores together and just split everything three ways. Can I, win. with respect, Teddy, on both of the first two days, you still would have lost. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm so sorry. Oh, God. You, yesterday, you'd have lost by quite a lot, even, oh, even with your scores added together. The host, Richard Osmond, uh, squashing that idea, um, in fact, both of those ideas, uh, the initial suggestion from Greg Rutherford, appeared to be that they should add the th uh, three other player scores together and then average them out. Um, but as um, Richard Osman pointed out, even adding the three of their scores together in total, uh, they would have still lost. Um, at the end of the game, um, he came to announce who had won that day's game. On Monday, Angela Barnes won the House of Games. On Tuesday, Angela Barnes won again. <laughs> Who has won Wednesday's House of Games? Why, it is Angela Barnes. <laughs> but if you add all of your points together today, you beat her. So that's congratulations there to Melvin, Denise and It was meant, of course, as a joke, uh, but it did bring home the point that if you have people who are fighting each other and there is one candidate who's doing particularly well you are always going to lose um, in that scenario and only by combining the opposition uh, once you have somebody that you want to defeat badly enough <laughs> uh, if you decide that person needs to be brought down then you can actually unite the opposition in order to defeat them potentially um, whether that's uh, possible in British politics uh, it remains to be seen uh, it wasn't possible on Richard Osman's House of Games, um, but it was uh, an interesting point that they made, and I thought it was significant, particularly given this new report from Compass. 
So there we are. Uh, those are some of the uh, challenges that I think uh, are facing uh, Keir Starmer and the Labour Party in the years ahead. And uh, as I say, I'm not going to make any predictions about how any of those are going to go, except to say that I think they are going to form uh, a significant part of the debate in the years to come and also on this podcast. So thanks for getting to the end of this uh, episode, if you indeed you have done, which I assume you must have done if you're listening to this. Um, and I hope you haven't been too disappointed by the lack of a guest and with me just uh, burbling on to myself. But I can promise you that you will not be disappointed with uh, guests in future weeks. Uh, there are some great ones being lined up, some of them already confirmed that I'm very much looking forward to speaking to. And in the new year, uh, we'll be also looking at uh, a range of different issues uh, regarding opposition uh, and have some other ideas about things that we might be able to to do on the podcast then. So uh, a Christmas special will be coming your way uh, in the very near future. Uh, until then, thanks very much for joining me. Look after yourselves and I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. You can follow us at Facebook at Opposition Studies, Twitter at Opposition UK, and online at oppositionstudies.net. Again, not complacent. We're not halfway through yet, so... Tune in on Thursday, it's going to be carnage <laughs> around here. Absolute carnage.